Well, good morning. It's wonderful, as always, to see you all here this morning. I do hope you're ready to sort of dig in once again into the Word of God. Uh, and to do that, I would ask you to join me in turning to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, is what we're going to be looking at this morning. As we come to the letter that was written to the town of Thyatira, uh, and I almost feel like I should put like almost a disclaimer on the sermon this morning, almost like fasten your seatbelts or something like that, because uh, I'm pretty sure <laughs> it's going to, well, it might be a bit of a bumpy ride, might make some people uncomfortable uh, actually with this passage this morning, because the topic that Jesus describes in this letter to this church is, it's probably one of the fastest growing problems facing churches today, especially churches in North America. It's the problem of tolerance and a church that is tolerates sin. Uh, and we have a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to use our time wisely. And we're going to jump in by reading the passage together. Uh, Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29, if you'd like to follow along with me. Uh, it says this, beginning verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw onto her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you another burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod. And when he, and when, uh, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. <clears throat> father God, um, yeah, I think I need you this morning in a, in a very special way as we look at this passage, uh, because I think it speaks so clearly to our churches in our world today, uh, and speaks to our own hearts about so many things that I think we need to hear. Um, I pray that, Lord, this, this morning, this would be a letter written to our church as, as an encouragement, but also as a warning of the times that we live in and, and the ways that we can go astray. Lord, I pray for your strength, I pray for your power, I pray for your Holy Spirit to move among us and give us ears to hear what the Spirit wishes to say to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was sort of 
thinking through this passage this week and the topic that it brings up, uh, my mind went to back to a story that's familiar to me and I kind of, you know, I know it pretty well. It's a story of a pastor named Joe Wright. Uh, and Joe was invited to offer a prayer for the opening session of the Kansas State Legislature. And when he showed up, everybody sort of expected the usual, just sort of, you know, just sort of the prayer, blah, 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 thank you, amen. You know, politically correct jargon, non-specific religious references that all the other ministers used to spout out when it was their turn to pray. <clears throat> but instead, Pastor Joe bowed his head and he prayed these words, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. And we confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and we've called it pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. And we've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and we've called it enlightenment. God forgive us in Jesus' name. And I'm sure when he said those words in that place that jaws dropped. I'm sure there were people who thought, can he really say that? Like, can he come here in this place and say those words? Because you know what? It doesn't make people comfortable. People are not comfortable when we call out sin. And even for us as a church, it's far easier to live just if we keep our heads down and we adopt a sort of live and let live attitude and we don't mention sin very much or very loud. And sadly, that's exactly what was happening in the church in Thyatira. And that's exactly the reason that Jesus is writing them this letter. And Thyatira was, I'm not sure if an interesting place quite covers it, uh, you know, when, when John actually, who was writing this, when, when he gave this letter to whoever it was delivering it and said, take a copy to Thyatira, chances are the person said, where? Like, because Thyatira, for all intents and purposes, was a place of no significance. Uh, actually, the Pliny, the, the historian, he's an ancient historian, referred to it by name only to say, Thyatira was among the unimportant cities. Um, <laughs> not something you put on your sign, I guess, in front of town. But um, this town was, it was sort of the modern equivalent of a roadside gas station. A place where people may have stopped to rest and fuel up before they went somewhere else. Because no one really made Thyatira their final destination. And because of that, we actually know less about Thyatira than any of the other seven sort of cities in the churches of Revelation. But we do know that originally Thyatira only had one purpose, it was, uh, which was to slow down invading armies so that Pergamum uh, could, could mount a defense. Thyatira was established basically as a military speed bump. 
Uh, its main purpose was to sacrifice itself to buy others' time. And that meant for a long time, Thyatira was little more than a military fort. They just garrisoned troops there. But then when Rome sort of conquered, you know, Asia Minor and most of the world, the danger of invasion was much less. So over the next hundred years or so under Rome, Thyatira morphed into more of a sort of a blue-collar town. That was known for its just many trade guilds. If you needed wool or leather or pottery or something like that, chances are you could find it in Thyatira. And yet, it's to this blue-collar backwater town that Jesus actually writes one of his longest letters. This is the longest letter to the seven churches. And he begins by saying, verse 18, And to the angel in the church of Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, as Jesus sort of introduces himself here, you, you may get a clue that not everything in this church is really going well, because this is, not, this is not teddy bear Jesus showing up to give warm hugs. But before we cover that, let's talk first about what this church was doing well. Because Jesus mentions four things in this church that really stood out. Their love, their faith, their service, and their endurance. And, it's inter- and they had those things in quantities that, that Jesus feels are worth commending them for. And, you know, that's an impressive list. I mean, all of us would love to see that kind of stuff in our church everywhere. And notice, too, they didn't just have those four things. Jesus says they were growing in them. They were doing them more now than they did in the past. This was, this was a church with momentum, It was a church that wasn't stagnant or standing still in doing these works, but they were actually making ground in the work that they were doing. And, you know, I've been to small towns, and I've actually known these kind of wonderful little churches, small but mighty. And even though the big churches in the big cities often get the most attention, the the small, faithful church makes a difference for the kingdom of God. And actually, I think that's sort of our first brief lesson from this passage is that there are no unimportant places and there are no unimportant churches. Jesus knows the small church and he loves the small church and he knows the difference that a small church can make in the world around them. So you'd think with all of this praise coming their way from Jesus himself, you'd think what could go wrong? But as we're about to see, despite all of those blessings, despite all of that praise, This small church had a very big problem and a very real problem. And we would probably call that problem today tolerance. As we see, as we continue, Jesus continues in verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And as we sort of, I think I sort of need to talk about tolerance for a moment or two here, because I think the word itself, tolerance, has sort of gotten a bad reputation of late, because when I grew up, I grew up in a world that encouraged tolerance. In fact, sort of civilized societies are based on this idea, the idea that if you and another person, if you disagreed about something, if you didn't see eye to eye, 
you didn't have to go to war. You, you didn't have to start a fight. You didn't have to start destroying that other person's reputation. You simply agreed to disagree. In fact, that kind of tolerance requires a differing of opinion to exist. And you could differ and you could still be friends. You could even love that other person and have them know it. And everybody was okay with it. That, might, you might say, was the old definition of tolerance. But that's not what the word tolerance in this verse means. The Greek word for tolerance here means to leave it to someone to do something, to let go or to allow. Uh, the New Living Translation says you are permitting that woman. And uh, Barclay's translation says you make no effort to deal with the woman Jezebel. You see, this kind of tolerance was, was basically just a hands-off approach to sin that was happening out in the open that everybody knew about in this church. And what most people were think were ha was happening in Thyatira in particular was, was that a woman, we don't know, Jesus calls her Jezebel. We don't know if that's her real name or if she was just like Jezebel-like because the name Jezebel itself carries a lot of baggage. If you know your Old Testament, uh, Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who married King Ahab of Israel and together they became about as wicked a royal couple as there ever was. Now, Jezebel brought Baal worship to Israel. She put to death the prophets of God. She had 450 prophets of Baal dying daily at her table. She sought to kill Elijah, the prophet of God. And in the end, Jezebel led the people of Israel to commit spiritual adultery as they left, you know, the God of their ancestors to worship Baal. So now this Jezebel in Thyatira, we see was, was doing much the same thing. Because most sources agree that the Jezebel in Thyatira was, was actually telling people in the church that it was okay to participate in trade guild festivals. Uh, back in that day when you joined, joined a trade guild, uh, you had to offer sort of a significant commitment to join. It was like sort of joining a secret society kind of thing almost. And these guilds, as part of that secrecy, would, would throw these wild parties for its members. And there would be idol worship to, you know, their patron deity, because they all had one. And it would be food sacrificed to idols going around in a banquet. And there was even sexual morality going on at these things. And this Jezebel, it seems, was saying to this church, it's all good. She was saying to them, you can participate. You can go and do that stuff wholeheartedly. Don't hold back. Because it's the way of the world. If you, it's what you need to be successful at business. And God wants you to be successful. And it wasn't just her, you know, her saying that was her opinion. She was claiming to be a prophetess. So she was essentially saying, this is what God is saying is okay. God's okay with this. And the church in Thyatira, they hear what she's saying and teaching. They see people starting to go to these parties. They know it's happening. She's even teaching this in the church and leading others in the church astray. And their response is to look the other way. The church doesn't say anything. Because I think that's really human nature. You know, sometimes it's just more comfortable to allow people to go on living in sin. It's easier to look the other way than, than to have to confront somebody. We don't like that. And sadly, what's true about the attitude of the church in Thyatira is becoming true in many churches today. 
And that brings us to sort of, I would say, the new idea of tolerance that we see in the world today. Because today, tolerance is no longer agreeing to disagree. In fact, it's no longer even disagreeing at all. Today, tolerance is expecting people to agree with you, expecting them to accept and affirm your beliefs. And if they don't, they become your enemy. If they don't agree with you they, can, you, they can be a bigot, they can be a racist or a Nazi or sexist or whatever name suffices. Because the one thing that this new tolerance is not is tolerant of people who think differently. And an even bigger problem, I think, today on top of all that is that in our world today, this tolerance that's expected of us isn't even based on facts anymore. Tolerance is more based on feelings and opinions, even if those feelings and opinions fly in the face of facts. A person's feelings have become the new standard. Simply offending someone, saying something they don't like to hear, is the new unpardonable sin. And you know, we knew days like this were coming. Even as Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, beginning of verse 3, he said, for a time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn aside from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think that perfectly describes the world we live in right now. And I think we're seeing churches buckle under that pressure. Churches that have started just going with the flow. Churches bending to that mob. Churches that just have started looking the other way when sin happens. And I think, again, there's probably two reasons this is happening. The first is that it's difficult and it's dangerous to take a stand in an environment like that. You know, people and churches that stand up against this kind of groupthink of the culture are often shunned and slandered and even attacked by society today. You know, we've seen people lose jobs, people fined, people accused of hate speech, all for saying things that are actually true. So it's so much easier just to say nothing and keep your head down. Because, you know, no one really likes having other people angry at them. And, you know, again, on the flip side, who doesn't like being popular? And if you're a church, you just say the right things, the approved things, the crowds will love you. They'll accept you. And if the choice is either to be loved or hated by the world, it's easier to be loved, even if it means your silence and something that you know is wrong. And then a second reason that churches, I think, become this kind of tolerant is ignorance of the word of God. Because you know what? It is easy to ignore sin when you never hear about sin. And churches, you know, they'll preach on love and joy and happiness and success and blessing for people. But in many churches, you'll never hear messages about repentance or judgment or God's wrath or even hell. And some of those churches even have even begun altering the meaning of the word of God, if not outright dismissing it, saying things like, you know, the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. You know, hell isn't real. It's just, it's an idea. And, you know, those sins, they'll say, those sins the Bible talks about, they were just a cultural thing. It's not true for us anymore. We've moved on. The Bible's a real irrelevant book. 
And you'll even hear them sometimes say, well, now we have, we have a new understanding of that passage that proves that sin isn't really what you think it is. And they use complicated excuses and fancy hermeneutics to dismiss, to dismiss the plain reading of God's word. And I even think that's what Jesus might mean when he talks in verse 24 about the deep things of Satan. Look at verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Deep things. And I can see this Jezebel saying something along the lines of, you know, you know, you know, yeah, Jesus said living like this was wrong, but we have a new understanding of his words now. And, and Jesus would actually affirm what we're doing if he knew all the circumstances. Or, or saying Jesus never lived in our culture. Uh, so what Jesus says is, isn't really relevant for us today. Uh, the truth that he spoke was for a different time and place. And, you know, saying stuff like that, you know, it sounds very intellectual. It sounds very profound. It sounds very thoughtful. It sounds very deep. Like, oh, wow, they've really thought about this. But it all really goes back to that original lie of Satan in the garden. When he planted that seed of doubt in humanity's heads by saying, did God really say? Does it really mean what you think it means? And you know, we've been finding ways to excuse and rationalize our sins ever since. And there may be some people right now thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Mark, that's, that's mean. I mean, it's borderline rude. I mean, it's not nice to have to tell other people how to live. It's not nice to confront people about, you know, their lifestyle. It's not our way to shove truth down other people's throats. And I'll agree with you a little bit. I mean, according to the world standards, it is kind of mean. It is rather rude. And I'll tell you something else. It's not a lot of fun either. I truly don't take a lot of joy in confronting or preaching on sin in the world in the church. It's not comfortable. But you know, here's something important I think we all need to know about this. And this is something that I think can make a difference between which side of the fence you want to stand on when the time comes. Because if we as a church are unwilling to call sin, sin, and if we're unwilling to call people to repentance, if all we want to do is just make feel, people feel loved and accepted, then all that we are doing for that other person is making them feel comfortable all the way into an eternity in hell. Because tolerance can make a person feel good about themselves now, but on an eternal scale, that kind of tolerance does not help people at all. It's like driving a ship straight for an iceberg and saying, I don't really want to bother the captain by asking him to turn. And our silence does not bring sinners security. It only brings them one step closer to God's judgment. And that brings us back to those words of the introduction we looked at earlier. As Jesus says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus is telling his church, this church, his eyes of fire. It's eyes that can see all things, eyes that are searching the hearts and minds of men, casting light even on hidden sin. John MacArthur's comment says, a church may feel very satisfied with itself, have a good reputation in the community and even with other churches, but the penetrating eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ see it as it really is. 
his eyes that see. And then it says he has feet of burnished bronze. And this is likely an image of stability as Jesus and his truth are firmly established and grounded. We are judged by the truth of God and it is truth that is unchanging and unchangeable. And then finally, Jesus also here claims the title of the son of God which is a nod to his worthiness to judge all things. So this is a picture of Christ who as a judge sees all things truly, judges by an unchanging standard and has full authority. And with that in mind, this is the judgment that Jesus reveals to this church about this Jezebel. Beginning in verse 21, he said, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, and thus they repent of her works. Then I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And there's actually three things here about this judgment I don't want us to miss. Because it sounds very harsh, but first we need to know that this judgment is fair. It is just. It is deserved. Some even point to the poetic justice of this moment that, you know, the same bed on which she committed adultery is now the bed of her suffering. But Jesus says he will give to each according to their works, giving only what each person deserves. Jesus is a fair and just judge, even if that makes us uncomfortable. Second thing I think we need to learn about this is that this judgment shows us that there are consequences for sin. Because make no mistake, we reap what we sow. And there's many who think that this sickness of Jezebel experience was some kind of sexually transmitted disease. Because you know what? Sin, it promises, you know, happiness. It promises freedom. But what it delivers in most people's lives is sorrow and bondage. You know, more often than not, you know, the result of a life of sin are destroyed homes, destroyed relationships, destroyed families, even destroyed lives. Sin has consequences both in this life and for eternity. And then third, last thing I think we need to know here is that when you hear about God's judgment in this case, you need to know that it was in part to protect his people. Because, you know, many, again, think, read this, they think, you know, that just sounds very harsh. But the Bible clearly tells us that those who teach are held to a higher standard and false teachers will be judged most harshly of all. Even to where we're told there's children involved. And I actually tend to think the mention of Jezebel's children here, it's not biological children, it's her spiritual children, uh, those who are following her into sin. And God takes that seriously. I remember... Uh, Reggie McNeil, he's an author. He spoke, I heard him speak a few years ago. And he was talking about Jesus' words when he, you know, Jesus talks about those who call it, call it, you know, cause a child to stumble and it would be better for that person to be thrown into the heart of the sea with a millstone around their neck. Reggie McNeil said, it's the one time in scripture when Jesus sounds like a member of the mafia. He's like, you mess with my family, you sleep with the fishes. Like that kind of thing, like... <laughs> But Jesus takes it very seriously when you lead his people astray. And the truth of all this 
that we can't avoid is that, again, sin has consequences and judgment is coming. And God takes his holiness of his people very seriously. But you know, on the flip side, because this is not all doom and gloom, this is not all fire and brimstone, because as we see, for those in the church who do not conform to the world, something else is in store. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast uh, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So what promises does God make to those who hold fast to the truth? Well, there's two of them here. First, we're a promised authority over the nations. Uh, and some translations have shepherd instead of rule that will shepherd over them, which maybe changed the meaning of this a little bit. And I remember, I remember Chuck Swindoll when he was reading this verse saying he gets dibs on Hawaii. I don't think that's fair, but wouldn't that be nice? Um, <laughs> but I'll be honest here. I don't even pretend to understand what this means when it says we will rule with Christ. I have no idea really what that's going to look like to have authority over nations. Now, I think this is just one of those things that's, that's sort of too wonderful for me to imagine. But I can tell you from these words, heaven will not be boring. It's not all flying around with harps and taking naps on clouds. In heaven, we'll have authority. We'll have a responsibility. We'll, in essence, have work to accomplish still. Because eternity is not just about existing forever. It's existing for a purpose. And in that purpose, we will continue to serve God and glorify him forever with our lives. It's going to be amazing things to do in heaven. Far beyond we can ever imagine. And then note, we're also given something else. This is the second thing. Verse 28, where Jesus says, I will give him the morning star. And to understand what that means, you need to read Revelation 22, verse 16, where Jesus himself says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus himself is the morning star. And what that means is that in heaven, we will know the beauty and the fullness of having Christ in our lives. No, no longer will sin distort our understanding. No longer will our earthly bodies limit our knowledge of Christ. We'll see him with our eyes and hug him with our arms and know what it means to have perfect joy with him. This is saying Christ gives himself to his people. Christ himself is our reward. And you know, those are some pretty amazing promises to a church in the middle of nowhere in a town that no one cared about. And it's still a promise, I think, made to each and every one of us who hold fast to the truth. And we're probably running a little short on time, but, you know, this sermon, there's so much to say. I had like three sermons worth of material here, and I had to figure it out. So I want to leave you with a couple applications, and I whittle them down to five applications that I think, well, that we can, we can keep in mind as a church that desires to stand for truth and confront sin. Five things we need to know. The first is we need to know that churches that abandon the truth of the word of God quickly become irrelevant. And I think that's ironic because churches often think if we abandon the truth, we'll become more relevant. 
You know, they want to draw a crowd so they're careful not to offend anyone, not to preach on sin, not to preach on judgment, not to make people uncomfortable. They stop preaching those things. They stop holding people to account and just let people slide. But you know what? If you look at any denomination that in the past has abandoned the word of God as its foundation, you will see churches that are either dead or dying. Second lesson, never give up on people. And I know we can read this verse, this passage, and focus a lot upon the judgment that we see here, because it's very, again, harsh. But also, don't overlook the mercy that Jesus gives to these very same people, even Jezebel, as he gives her time to repent. Because God is patient. God is long-suffering. And God loves people. He, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And in all of this, he wants beyond be, anything else to see people come to him in faith. So you know what? Keep praying for the people in your life. Keep inviting them to know Jesus. Keep telling them not just about sin, but about grace. Every chance you get, no matter where they are, where they're at, in all of those things. Because you know what? Chances are God hasn't given up on them either. Third thing I think we need to know here is that if you do love someone, if you truly love someone, you're going to speak the truth to them. Love does not avoid truth. Love does not overlook sin. And love does not allow people to live in a way that will lead to their eternal destruction. Love intervenes with truth. True love is not silent. True love speaks truth and, and confronts sin even when it's very difficult because you love that person and you know what that sin is going to do in their lives. Then the fourth thing I would give you this is that I'm just going to flip those things around. And that is if you speak truth to a person, do all that you can to make sure that person knows that you love them. You know, some point out that Thyatira as a church was basically the flip side of Ephesus. You know, Jezebel would not have last, lasted a minute in Ephesus. Eph Ephesus was the doctrinal church. It was the truth church. It, was, it says they, they tested the false teachers in the midst and they, you know, they dealt with them. But they lacked love. And Thyatira was the loving church. We love everybody. We love, the, we love God. We li but they lack truth. And you see, as churches, we can't live at, at one extreme or the other. As a church and as people of God in, in presenting truth, it's truth in love. If you can't hold both of those things, you're out of balance. And, you know, people often ask me, you know, what would you say, pastor, uh, to someone who's living in a way that's not pleasing to God? And I try to answer them the same way. I would say, I would speak the, the God's truth to them about their sin. But I would hope that when I do it, the person that I'm talking to would know that I love them. The person would know that they're not my enemy. The person would know that even in speaking this truth to you, I want God's best for your life. And then finally this morning in all of this, 
Last lesson is that our goal needs to be in all of this to bring people to Jesus. Um, Because you know what? If all you're going to do is love people and all you're doing is making them feel good about themselves. And if all you want to do is preach truth at people, it may make you feel good because you're winning some arguments. But neither of those things should be our goal. Our goal is to bring people into a relationship with Jesus. It's to tell people about the gospel because it's the gospel that can set them free. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that can truly change their hearts. And when we talk to people about sin, we can never neglect to mention our Savior who died so they can be forgiven of that sin. And it is Jesus and that person's relationship with Jesus that will make the real difference in their lives. Because you know what? In the end, we're all sinners. We are all sinners saved by grace. And the purpose of being what we may call today of being an intolerant church, a church that calls us in the purpose there is not to prove how right we are. It's not to brag about our own righteousness. It's not to lecture people. The purpose is always to save sinners. And I know even when we talk about sin in the church, we can often talk about the big sins you know, that we want to call out in the world today. But the truth is we all have blind spots in our lives to sin. And there's sins in churches like gossip or anger or conflict or murmuring and complaining that, you know, so often churches are okay just tolerating. So again, this is an area where maybe we need to be careful about throwing the first stone, but We still need to take a stand. And if we're going to confront sin, we need to confront all sin. And if we're going to speak truth, we need to make sure it is the whole truth. But you know, that's why when we accept Jesus' mercy, it washes over us like a flood. Because knowing the truth of our sin and that we are sinners is just, it's such grace. Knowing that we have truly been forgiven, not of ourselves, but by the grace of God. And as someone once said, you know, when we all get to heaven, there will be no contest to see who is the most deserving of God's grace because no one deserves it. it says there will only be one contest in heaven. When we look back and see what we were before, when we see the pit from which he rescued us, the only contest will be who can sing the loudest. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father God, we live in a world where... I guess increasingly more and more, it is becoming a tough place to be people who stand for the truth. You know, as as a society, more and more, we see them calling good evil and evil good and, and believing it. And that can make it hard to take a stand. It can make it just easier for us in our lives and even as a church to just keep silent. But Lord, we help that... We pray that you would help us to be a church that proclaims truth. Help us to be people who speak truth to the people in around and give us the courage to take that stand. And Lord, I pray that you would also help us that when we do speak that truth, we could speak it in love. That love would be our motivation to confront sin in the, in the lives of the people around us. Because we want the best for them. We want salvation for those people. We want to see them saved. We want to see them forgiven. We want to see them experience your grace available to them. And I pray that the truth we speak would bring them to the cross, that they would bring them into a relationship with you. 
And again, Lord, in this world that we live in, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we can be discerning people. I pray that you would give us wisdom to live in times like these as people called to be people of truth and people of holiness. And I pray that you would help us hold fast to that. Hold fast to the truth. Let it be the foundation of our lives and let us hold fast to holiness, not tolerating sin in our lives or in our midst. Because Lord, you have called us to be holy people. And I pray that Lord, we would be a holy truth, a holy church that Lord just... uh, That stands for truth. In Jesus' name, amen.